0: So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today, I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. Every new parent worries. Some of us worry way too much because when you have your first kid, it is a major shock to the system. It's incredible, honestly, that the hospital will just let you take home this very small human being when you are a person who has never taken care of a very small human being before and you don't know how to keep it alive. But for Mike Conforto, the worry and anxiety over his newborn son completely took over his life and his marriage.
1: I, you know, would have these moments where I would, take him for a walk in a stroller and stop to talk to someone and there'd be rocks next to the stroller and somehow I'd get it in my head that he had picked up one of the rocks and was going to choke on it, even though there was no evidence that he had even looked at the rocks, let alone picked one up. And so things like that just kept coming up on occasion over and over and over again.
2: And suddenly, instead of every month or every two months, Mike started having these very intense, attacks of anxiety up to several times a day, like he might have one in the morning and then be okay for a while in the afternoon and then have another in the evening. And it was just suddenly, it just rocked our world.
0: The term OCD gets thrown around a lot, but we rarely think about the impact that it can have on an individual and their spouse and their children. Mike and his wife, Nicole, had no choice but to learn how to tame his crippling panic. Otherwise, they'd never have been able to thrive as the parents of two children. I'm Joe Piazza, and this is Committed. before they became parents, Nicole and Mike met at a short story reading group. This is like a book club for people who don't have time to read the book. Mike is the one who got to the group first. He was looking out the window, and he saw a cute girl about to walk in.
1: Oh, I really hope she's going to join the book club, and then she walked in, and I was very excited. And we got to know each other during the book club and immediately hit it off. And I invited her to trivia that night. And so we went to trivia and so on and so forth. And then I proceeded to get pretty tipsy and tried to kiss her in the middle of the street. And she politely declined, but gave me her number instead.
0: (laughs) I love all of that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I then proceeded not to call her, but that's another story.
0: Yeah, I just want to flag here that he did not call her. But they did keep going to the short story club together, so they kept seeing one another.
1: But yeah, between short story reading group and hanging out, we ended up together for a really long time. I don't know, how'd I do?
2: Great. Yeah, I just said we we saw each other every two weeks, so even though he didn't call me, we kept seeing each other. And that's how we kind of, we both knew we wanted to hang out, but we were both a bit too shy to make the first move.
1: (laughs) I also was young and didn't really know what I was doing about following up on things.
0: Yeah, Mike, not good at following up on things. The two of them have since learned that Nicole is really the planner in their relationship.
2: But if you ask him what he's doing tomorrow, he'll just kind of give you a fuzzy look in his eye. Like, why would I be thinking about tomorrow? Whereas I have always, apart from pandemic times, I would normally have like my next four trips on the calendar. I I like to know what's coming up.
1: Yeah, that goes back to the idea that I can't remember the most important information, but the most trivial stays in my brain for years. Oh, I should call this this woman that I think is incredible. That's super important to remember. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow my brain didn't keep it in. There. <laughs> no, I'm better about that now. I hope. I hope
0: so. After the third short story reading club, Nicole Finley called Mike out and said, "Hey, what are you doing? Can we just hang out sometime?"
2: we did, we had a great first date. It was really fun and spontaneous.
1: Yeah, didn't really have a plan. We just ended up <laughs> meeting up at a bar and then I think we made an appearance at a friend of mine's birthday party that was at a dance club, was that that night? Or was that a different night?
2: I think date? that was the next one. Oh, okay, never mind. Yeah. not that cool.
0: They immediately hit it off on a lot of different levels. They were both musicians who were just learning the guitar and amateur songwriters who loved to sing.
2: And we both love international travel. And I remember saying to him five minutes into that conversation, I said, I think we should be friends. And Mike said, I think we already are.
1: (laughs) I think one of the things that has been really great about our relationship has been very good. Like she talks about that and I'm like, yep, that was what was going on in my brain too. Like just very much like that. I do think I even invited myself along on a trip she was taking to Guatemala because uh, I was so excited about the prospect of all the travel that she wanted to do and had done. She had just come back, when we first met Nicole, had just come back from France. Yeah.
2: Peru and, and, and France, Peru. And done yeah. two back-to-back like, work trips.
1: All the globetrotting was very, was very cool, and I wanted to join her on all of it. Thankfully, she did not get, it was not awkward that I invited myself along on this trip, and in fact, I think it was super fun.
2: We, we went to Guatemala, I think, maybe nine months, after that first date and and i was meeting my sister there who had been traveling for a long time and and mike ended up ended up being just incredibly grateful to have mike on the trip he was he was so relaxed he was perfectly happy to speak spanish even though he was very rusty we were both very rusty but he just dove in even though his spanish was maybe the third worst of the group (laughs) sorry third best of the group (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, it was wonderful. It was useful and relaxed and all these things that I just didn't expect.
0: Nicole got an opportunity to go to school in Paris, and Mike just decided to quit his job and move to Europe with her. It was fine, he found work, and they hung out in France just being young and fun and delightful for a couple years
1: while we were there, we recognized that we were probably going to be together forever. And then, very unromantically, there was always this thing nagging in the back of our heads. Of, oh, if we want to stay here, then we need paperwork. And so maybe we should get married because that will simplify the paperwork. So I decided I would pull the trigger on proposing to her while we were in Paris. I'd say, honestly, looking back, it was mostly because I knew it would be so darn romantic to do. So I, I took her on a, on a, I mean, she knew it was going to happen. None of this was super surprising, but it was very, it was very romantic. We went on a boat cruise along the Seine that ended at the Eiffel Tower right when it lit up. And I proposed to her on that dinner cruise. It was really lovely.
0: It was so damn romantic.
1: And then we finally did get married, but we did that back in the States. So we flew back to have, to have actually two two weddings, one on the east coast with family there and one on the west coast with family there because our families are kind of split across the coast. So we had a lot of celebrating for for our wedding. That was super fun.
0: They eventually moved back to New York and started trying to get pregnant. But they kept traveling, kept having fun, and then eventually they had their first child. It was about four months after their son was born that things started to change. That Mike started to change. His intensely creative and sometimes messy brain took a turn for the worse. We'll get to that after a quick break. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. One morning, when Nicole and Mike's first baby was four months old, Mike found a red spot on their son's lip. He started doing what all new parents do, he started Googling it. And then he started hyperventilating and nearly passed out. See, Google will tell you lots of things about what is wrong with your child or what is potentially wrong with your child, and Mike really took in all of the worst case scenarios. He'd completely convinced himself that the little dot on their son's lip meant that he was tragically, maybe even fatally, ill. The spot was nothing. It eventually faded. But Mike's panic disorder got way worse. I
1: just fell into a spiral of panic and anxiety that our child was in serious danger even though they weren't. And yeah, that was really the first time for me too, so I didn't really know what to do with that. I was convinced that I was the only person who was thinking through the actual ramifications of all of this, and that everyone else was being too, they weren't worrying enough. Right. So, yeah. And then that just continued in little fits and bursts throughout, what, like his first two years of his life, of our older son's life? Yes. So I you know, would have these moments where I would take him for a walk in a stroller and stop to talk to someone and there'd be rocks next to the stroller and somehow I'd get it in my head that he had picked up one of the rocks and was going to choke on it, even though there was no evidence that he had even looked at the rocks, let alone picked one up. And, and so things like that just kept coming up on occasion over and over and over again. It was very intrusive to our lives because it would not manifest as like a panic attack instead it would manic it would manifest as a like a worry a very vocal active worry right like I'd be like no no no, we can't do that thing because of whatever and just interrupt our lives like right in the middle of what was happening and start an argument or force us to do something else, pull my kid away from some plant that I was worried that they were going to touch, making them upset in doing so. It was very much a, like a, a thing that would interrupt our lives and be very confrontational in the moment. So it was very disruptive to our lives. And it would often end with Nicole being like, okay, you need to go somewhere else, just go away. And I would go into a room and be away from everybody having my anxiety, making leaving her to do everything, pick up the pieces. So yeah, that was fun.
2: I would add, Mike has always worn his heart on his sleeve. And so it's hard to imagine him like suffering in silence. That's just not Mike. From the moment when he tried to kiss me in the middle of the street in front of our friend, he's just always been kind of very clear about who he is and what's going on in his heart and mind. Which is one thing I absolutely love and admire about you. But yeah, when it came comes to OCD, it was very present, very much Every thought was shared, as, as far as I know.
0: Over the next few years, anxiety could completely undo and disable Mike. Oftentimes, his panic would give way to despondence, as if the doom that he had so meticulously imagined had actually already occurred.
2: It was different from any, any other parent, new parent I knew. And, but it took us a while. Like At first, we really thought he was having panic attacks, and we didn't know what kind of help he needed. And this went on for years.
0: Nicole got pregnant with their next child when their first was two years old. And suddenly Mike saw danger everywhere.
2: Instead of every month or every two months, Mike started having these very intense attacks of anxiety up to several times a day, like, he might have one in the morning and then be okay for a while in the afternoon and then have another in the evening. And it was just suddenly, it just rocked our world. There were three of us and I was <laughs> feeling pretty pretty sick and pregnant. I was nauseous all through both of my pregnancies. And so that was, that was really hard. And we just couldn't live like that.
1: It was very hard to get a proper diagnosis that matched what was going on. I think a lot of times people chalked it up as just new parent anxiety, but there was a th- there was something about it that was really debilitating in a way that approach didn't seem to handle properly. And I hit bottom, so to speak.
0: His rock bottom was the day that he threw a piece of scrap lumber into their wood burning stove. Suddenly, he was completely convinced that that piece of scrap lumber was coated in arsenic that could kill his whole family.
1: I, I was so terrified that I poisoned my family that I just was, I was just unable to do anything except sit in the corner and be panicked for like a, pretty much an entire day.
0: Up until this point, no one had been able to diagnose Mike. Most therapists just brushed it off, but. Finally, Nicole's therapist suggested that it might be OCD.
1: And referred us to someone. And the moment we met up with that person, she, her response was, oh yeah, this is absolutely OCD. You are, uh, this is is something I've seen a lot before. And I remember thinking, no, that can't be true. Because if that's true, then we would have heard about this a long time ago. (laughs) And she was able to convince us.
0: The biggest thing the therapist taught them is that there's a big difference between general anxiety and OCD-level anxiety. It's not just that you feel anxious about the world, it's that you can't stop thinking about this one thing and you're completely compelled to try to do something about it. It's an obsession and compulsion cycle.
1: There is a huge difference between being a new parent and just being anxious about new things and having OCD and it being something that requires special treatment. And that was just masked because not enough people knew what those differences were and how to respond accordingly, rather than just saying, oh yeah, new parent is gonna worry about their kid.
0: The official diagnosis was obsessive compulsive disorder. I feel like people use the term OCD Very frivolously, often, everyone's like, oh my God, I'm so OCD. What does it mean from a clinical standpoint?
1: Yeah, that is a really interesting question. So I think the reason why OCD is used in the way that it is, is because the ways OCD manifests in a lot of people is obsessive in the sense that there's some specific thing that they need to have in a specific way in order for their anxiety to be alleviated. And that is certainly true, but what that specific thing is, is often just reduced to being like keeping a spreadsheet in order or making sure your house is clean. And it can be a much wider range of things than that. So an example of something that I learned that I didn't know could be an obsessive, an OCD obsession is, is intrusive thoughts. Having a thought that you don't want to have and you just find yourself unable to move away from that thought.
0: What happens is you have some obsession, you have a thought that you just can't get out of your head. And that thought escalates and escalates, and you just can't stop thinking about it.
1: It escalates into something that is all-consuming. And so to alleviate your anxiety around that thing, you are compelled to do something about it. And at first, it for me, it was, it was very minor. It was, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to make sure to wash my hands every time I come and that's totally rational. That's like a completely reasonable way to respond to the anxiety that you might be bringing germs into your house where your, your newborn infant could legitimately get sick from something. But it doesn't work. It alleviates your fear. It alleviates your anxiety a little bit, but not quite enough to make it go away entirely. And so the next time that that happens, you find yourself needing to do that compulsion more and more. And that's when it starts to interfere with your life. So the hand-washing example is a really great one. I ran into this sort of in the middle of my OCD where I'd wash my hands, I'd be done with it, I'd walk away, I'd go, I'd still feel anxious, and I would think about how maybe I didn't wash my hands correctly or I touched something that might have made my hands dirty again, and I'd go right back in and wash my hands. The one that got really bad for me was making sure that the house was in a good state before I left it, including locking doors, turning on stoves, that sort of thing. And so what starts is just like, oh, I'm just going to check the door before I leave. He comes checking the door two times or walking halfway to the bus and then turning around and coming to check the house again, because the whole walk down, I was thinking about how I might have left the door unlocked and how someone can get in. At its absolute worst, I was finding myself walking through the house and checking all the closets to make sure that nobody was hiding in the house who had like snuck in while a door was open for 10 seconds.
0: So you start with something that feels innocuous, and then it gets worse and worse until you're almost incapable of doing anything. Now, remember, all of this is happening as Nicole is pregnant and then in the middle of her postpartum period with a baby and a toddler. In addition to the stress of being a mom of two young children, she was also dealing with all of her husband's anxieties. This was not easy on her or on their marriage. More after a quick break. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. What is this, I mean, what is going through your head when all of this is happening? You're a new mom, and I think we all know how hard that is. I know that I was a completely different person right after both of my babies were born. Was that at all frustrating for you? Because you're like, I just had these children. I'm going through this, and I don't know if I have the bandwidth for you right now.
2: Oh, absolutely. You just hit it on the head. Yeah, I think as the partner of somebody going through an anxiety disorder, it's very it's very confusing because if he'd had like a physical ailment, I think the caretaking role is very clear. If he'd broken a leg, I would know exactly what to do. <laughs> I'd be working harder, and I might be a little frustrated. I'd be like, "This is not a very convenient time for you to break your leg," but I would, I would know that I just need to like bring him food and take care of him until he's better. With OCD, it was, it was very unclear, and that was that was terrifying. Like what, what ro- my role would be, could be in helping him get better, and it was very much changing from moment to moment. So he would he would freak out about something like, he, we had blueberries in these planters on the deck of this house that came with the house that we had just bought in, in Seattle. And, and he worried that arsenic had leached somehow from the treated wood planters into the soil and into the blueberries. And our two-year-old, of course, loves blueberries at this time. And he says, don't eat them. Can't handle you eating any of these. But then his level of anxiety would, would be such that he would act almost as if we were we had already eaten poisoned blueberries and we were about to die. You know, like that was kind of his level of anxiety. Like he's thinking, well Bennett was on the deck for a minute and he might have eaten a blueberry, so do maybe let's drive into the emergency room and get his sp- stomach pumped just in case. Like that was kind of the level that I was dealing with. And so I would it was just kind of like putting out a fire. Try to calm him down and say, you know, he looks fine, look, he's smiling. Let's just keep an eye out just in case or something. And then I would also try, this sounds bad, but I would try making light of it or making fun of it because I just, I wanted to support him but not being the, the actual fear. Let's look at this ridiculous fear together. And that did not work either. I also tried at some point when I got to the a bit of an end of the rope, just saying, I can't talk to you about this anymore. I'm so sorry you're going through this, but everything I've tried doesn't seem to be helping. I need you to either deal with this on your own or, or call somebody else because I'm sick. <laughs> I, I'm pregnant, I need to rest. You know, I've been dealing with a two-year-old all day because you're off with your anxieties and I, I just can't caretake anymore. So I tried all of those things. None of them felt great. None of them really worked.
0: And that is why she was so grateful when her therapist suggested it might be OCD and gave both of them tools to try to lessen Mike's anxiety and make life easier for Nicole.
2: My therapist suggested that Mike use a code phrase when so now when he needs to, when something's really about to happen, you know, when he's feeling that a strong anxiety. He uses a code phrase and that's just so that he doesn't upset the kids who are just I think too young to to be to help or process what's going on. And that makes family life a lot easier. And we don't need it very often. It's pretty rare. But that that way Mike's job now and part of his treatment is sometimes instead of asking for reassurance, he needs to talk to somebody And this is what the therapist's words were. This is the OCD specialist's words were a reasonable person. He needs to find a reasonable person and ask them what they would do. And then whatever that is, he has to do. And so rather than make me his reasonable person, if the kids are around, he goes into another room and calls somebody else.
1: So the therapy that I was prescribed and had to do is called exposure response prevention, which the more I think about it, the more I kind of feel like it's kind of terrifying. So you are to list out all of your fears, all the things that provide anxiety that you have sessions and compulsions over and grade them based on how high of an anxiety level they in you, like a scale of one to 100, right? And at this point, by the way, I had probably 20 of these. So it was a long list. You start at the ones that provide you the least anxiety, but still give you some anxiety. And you are to put yourself, you are to expose yourself to the thing that causes that anxiety and then do nothing. Don't compel yourself to do anything. Just sit with the anxiety for as long as you possibly
0: can. So in other words, you're putting yourself in a place of extreme discomfort and then staying there as long as you can. It sounds terrible.
1: And then as you get better at that, you move up your ladder. So, I mean, the ladder example is a really great one. Let's say you're afraid of heights, although I don't think I would recommend this as a therapy for for fear of heights. I'll use it as an analogy for OCD. You would get a ladder and you'd step up one step on the ladder and you would wait as long as you could with that anxiety to get off the ladder. And then later you'd come back and you'd step up two steps until you were able to make it all the way up the ladder without too much anxiety. So for me, it was things like eating berries from the planters, just eating one berry, and not doing anything about it, sitting and dealing with that anxiety, because the more, this is how I understand it, the more my brain and my body were sitting with that anxiety, the higher my tolerance could be of that anxiety again. And I would find myself not needing those compulsions to alleviate those obsessions and, and the anxiety that went along with them. And it worked. I did this. I had to do it on my own for a while. I had some guidance, but it was very much self-motivated. And I probably did it for a couple months. I have these lists of all of my anxieties and how and my exposure res- response prevention strategy for them. And it was extremely effective. And so I was able to go from having, you know, 20 or 30 of these things. I look back on the list and there are a couple things there that still will provide me anxiety, but it's probably three. And even in those circumstances, if I ever feel anxious about it, and I have, (laughs) I joke, there's lots to do, so I don't always have the emotional or physical energy to do one of these exposures. I will force myself to do something that gives me discomfort and sit with it for as long as I can. And that reduces the future anxiety of it. In fact, that reminds me, I need to go do a couple on (laughs) some things. I think outside and cleaning outdoor things still provides me some anxiety. So as this spring comes forth, I'm going to have to Get myself outside, get myself dirty as a way of doing some exposures. is what it's called. It's been kind of incredible to watch, even though it's just been on me. Because you re- you're listening to this this proposal of how you're supposed to fix it, and not only does it sound terrible, it sounds like it's not going to work. But it totally does. It totally worked for me.
2: And it turns out when someone's dealing with OCD, usually a family member is involved in the treatment. In my case, I went with him and. It was such a relief, I have to tell you, to be given a role, to, to be told what to do. Because I had just been flailing almost as much as poor Mike had. I yeah. felt so much for him this whole time. But it's hard to watch your, your spouse go through something so terrifying and just not know how to help. And I'm so grateful that in the end that, that the OCD specialist did give me a way to help.
0: They had to implement these tools as quickly as possible when their new baby was born. He was healthy and wonderful, but he did have some kind of sleep disorder where he would just scream in the middle of the night for hours on end.
2: So we had to kind of immediately move to all of our focus and energy on that and getting through the day and helping our older kid like adjust to this terrible reality of having zombie parents. And then the pandemic hit. And that's, that's, and so we never really had a chance to, like, process what happened with the OCD. And that's, I think that's what compelled me to write about it. It's just like, this was the chapter of our lives that was really intense and important.
0: Nicole did write about it. Last August, she wrote a modern love column for the New York Times entitled, A Marriage Stressed by Obsessions and Compulsions. And in the midst of a global pandemic, an essay about panic and compulsions really touched and helped a lot of people. Speaking of the pandemic, nothing really trains you for a world where everything is anxiety inducing, like having an actual anxiety disorder.
1: I will say that, like all that work around dealing with uncertainty and anxiety, talk about training for a pandemic. (laughs) I daily am amazed at how little anxiety i'm not to say that i don't have any anxiety around the pandemic there's plenty to worry about but i look back on the time in which i had my peak of my ocd and just thinking about how i would have responded to this pandemic in that time i would have been catatonic i would have not been able to do anything and now I feel like I'm ready for anything, like I can take it on, it never really exceeds. I'm never really in a, in a place of panic like I was about a global pandemic that when it first started was very scary. We didn't know what the virus could do or how it spread. There was disagreeing d- disagreement around whether or not we should be washing our groceries. It all sounded like a collective obsession that could have ended in a bunch of compulsions, uh, but I was ready for it.
0: You really were. You're like, I've been training for this my whole fucking life. Yes, exactly. Here I go. You want to wash your fruit? I've been doing this since 93.
1: Yeah, everyone was complaining about their hands being dry from hand washing. I had, my hands have already adapted to having absolutely no oils in them from washing them three or four times a day.
0: Is there anything
2: in this that has actually made you guys stronger as a couple? Oh yeah. Definitely. Have we had time to think about it and articulate it? Maybe not, <laughs> but I mean...
1: We just make a great partnership at this point. It feels like we can take on almost anything at this point. And we have had a number of things we've needed to take on since then that we're recognizing in the moment. like, wow, this, we're able to handle this pretty well, especially around the pandemic. Oh, so, okay well, you do that, and I do this, and we'll have this deep discussion about it, and we can just execute it on really well. Not to say that it's perfect and we don't get into arguments about it, but I don't know, I just feel like we're really, we're, good, we're a good team, because mm-hmm. we've had to go through all of this.
2: I agree.
0: They also found themselves wanting to spend more and more time together, and remembering all the things that they liked about each other in the early days of their relationship, before they had kids, before they had all the anxieties, I mean, let's face it, having a family can be like running a business. And Mike and Nicole had been so focused on running that business that they hadn't been spending that much time on their personal relationship.
1: But thank God Nicole's a planner because she was planning <laughs> dates anyway. And so that helped a lot. And during the pandemic, we found ourselves wanting to do something creative together. And so we, as a as a sort of date slash you know, spending time together, moment we decided we were going to write a book together.
0: Tell me more about that. I want to hear all about writing together as a couple. Yeah,
1: that was awesome. It, it was great.
2: So much fun. I we so we're both very creative people. I think I mentioned we both still do music and write songs occasionally. And I have been working on becoming a writer for a while. I had written one novel. That I now call my learning novel. Mm-hmm. Mike, we've all got them. Yeah, <laughs> and Mike had started writing a novel but never finished, which probably shouldn't surprise you. And now that a little more about Mike. But anyway, Mike Mike always has amazing ideas for creative projects, and we thought, why not do some, try something together? I think this was we was it was right before the pandemic hit, and we had a little extra time over the holidays. And we were still a little sleep deprived. And I think that just made us feel like, sort of like when you're, you're slightly drunk, you, your inhibitions go out the window. And, that's, and we were like, let's write a book together. Let's just write a novel together. What's the worst that could happen? Might be a disaster, but at least we'll have tried. <laughs> and so we started brainstorming all of these ideas. And we made ourselves come up with a bunch before we picked one. But we finally picked one that we both loved. We just totally fell in love with it. And I should say, Mike and I both love to read, but we have very different tastes in books. Mike is a little more sci-fi fantasy, and I'm a little more like women's fiction, romantic comedy. And there's only three books that we both agree on that we love, and they're all pretty different. But anyway, so we we thought, well, if we're going to write something together, it has to be something we both are super excited about. And so I was like, where mike, i think mike said first it can't be a romance and i was like fine can i have a romantic subplot and he's sure and i you know and i don't want it to be like way of futuristic or or, or total science fiction and he said well could I at least have some slightly just a hair off of our world elements and i was like of course so we compromised and we came up with something that we love and we wrote it together our voices could have sounded very different that was the other big fear like one big fear is we wouldn't finish it and it would just or Mike would lose interest halfway through and it would be a total disaster. And another fear is like our voices wouldn't meld. But that didn't seem to be a problem at all. Like I it just never, it never seemed to be an issue. There's certainly some parts that Mike wrote that I never could have written and probably vice versa.
1: Just amazed, you know, we went into that process the way you described and then came out with a manuscript. It was incredible. Yeah. But I don't think I would have ever made it
0: I mean, maybe I would
1: have gotten about a tenth of the way through. I think the motivation and the ability for you to see the big picture of how the book was supposed to come together and make sure that we hit all the right notes and had it, and that the dialogue fit in the right way and that characters developed the right way. Those are all things that I I was just so
2: impressed by. It. Yay!
0: I I want to read it. Okay. <laughs>
2: Hopefully you'll be able to. There's still some major hurdles to go, but we actually have some fun news. We are talking with a literary agent, an amazing oh about representation, and we are we I, we I entered it into this contest for books and stories with film potential, and it's a finalist. Oh. So, oh my god, we might we might get it made into a movie, which again is like a huge huge hurdle to overcome but we kind of wrote it with that idea in mind that like we could envision it as something we kind of wrote it in a way that that felt to us a bit cinematic and so it's amazing to have that validation from this from this contest so anyway we'll see hopefully this is very very
0: exciting congratulations guys writing this book together has been a magical and wonderful way to start to get to know each other again to start to fall in love all over again and really just to spend time together especially during a pandemic that has completely changed all of our lives
2: it's so easy i think to just be exhausted at the end of every day and get the kids to bed and say i'm done <laughs> and we have lots of days like that don't so me wrong but we, we plan, we, can't, we put it on the calendar and, and at least once a week we sit down and write together after the kids are in bed and usually we're feeling tired going into it, but somehow we come out of it feeling really energized and jazzed about, <laughs> about it. And we really want to get it published so we can spend more time together I writing.
1: I <laughs> see the writing as testament to how our relationship has grown, for sure, it's just really it's just really wonderful.
2: Aww.
0: This episode was hosted and reported by Joe Piazza. A very special thanks to Mike and Nicole. Committed is produced by Ramsey Yundt. The executive producers are Joe Piazza and Tyler Klang. Theme song by Tristan McNeil. For comments, suggestions, or to be part of the show, give us a call at 404-996-1173. That's 404-996-1173. Or send us an email at Joe at committed That's jo at committedpodcast.com. Committed is a production of iHeartRadio and produced in our studios located in Atlanta, Georgia. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty-turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala.